Uh, we're going to shift gears right now as we focus on the message. Now, I was so excited last week when Pastor Sam preached, and, but I was a little disheartened when my wife told me uh, later that day um, that, that she told Pastor Sam that he was her favorite preacher. <laughs> and I said, honey, really? <sighs> Pastor Sam's your favorite preacher? She says, yes, because when he preaches, I get to sit with you. I said, oh. And so just a little while ago, my... Uh, my um, my grandson, who's in the service over here, he's four years old, and he was sitting in my lap, and I said, well, I'm going to have to go. I've got to get ready to go preach. He goes, I don't want you to preach, because he wants me to sit with him through the service. So it's okay not being the favorite preacher of everybody. I'm not the favorite preacher of my, son, or my, my, my uh, grandson or my wife, and, uh, but I'm here to, to preach to you today. We're, we're following up in the book of Ephesians, and I've ta- called this message um, a new or, or wardrobe change. Because as Christians, we ought to, ought to change some things about ourselves. When you have a new identity, it, it naturally results in some changes. When I got married, I brought into the marriage all my stuff for my single life. I mean, 27 years of single living, clothes, furniture, all this stuff. Honestly, I could pack all my stuff in a little um, Toyota. So I didn't own a whole lot of stuff. And when we got together, uh, shared our house, and went through all my clothes, and my wife started setting some stuff aside that I was not going to keep anymore. I didn't do that to her clothes, but she went through my clothes. And one of my, one of my favorites was a pair of uh, they're, they're very thin pajamas. Uh, they, weren't, they didn't make you sweat. They were very comfortable, but they were the color of pea soup. And I liked those pajamas, and she said, these have got to go. She says, uh, we're, we're, you're not going to wear those in our house. And she went through a number of things that actually, as a single guy, I thought they were pretty nice, but I discovered, as many of you men have discovered, now that you've married wives who know fashion better, that doesn't look good on you. You know, that, that's, that's out of date. And so you started a clean house. Some of you know from weight loss, you've lost, there are people in this church have lost 50, 80, 100 plus pounds, just like they'd cut themselves in half. And so when they go into their, their closet and look at their clothes, nothing fits anymore, which is kind of exciting in a way. Um, all these old things that have old memories attached to them, things that, that you used to wear that were, were big, you say, I don't need those anymore. I need some new clothes to fit the new me. And so that's what Paul's going to talk about in this passage, this idea of, of getting rid of old things and putting on new things, because that's who we are in Christ. So if you have a Bible, we're going to read that passage in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start it today and actually conclude this thought next Sunday. Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, Paul has spent the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians telling them what God has done for them and letting them know that they have a new identity, that God has set them apart from their old way of life. They are now holy. They, are, they belong to God. They've been adopted as his children he says that, that God so loved them that he sent his son to die for them and that they are loved. They are loved. 
He says that they are forgiven because their sins have been paid for. He says they've been redeemed because they've been bought with the price. He says they become heirs because they have an inheritance set up for them. He says they've been raised from death to life, so, so they reign now in the heavenlies. He said that, that they've been set on a new course of life, and they are his workmanship. He said they are members of God's household. They are brothers and sisters with other believers. He, he goes through all these things and say, this is who you are now. Holy, forgiven, loved, uh, an heir, raised, workmanship. You, these, this is your new identity in Christ. So let's start acting that way. Let's start acting according to the way God sees you. In other words, you've been made new, so act like the person you are in Christ. Sometimes you'll see a, an older person, might be, your, might be a teenager or an adult, but you'll say to that person, don't act like a baby. In other words, don't act the way you used to be. Act according to who you are now. You're, you're an adult. You're a grown person. So act like it. Raise your standard of conduct to match who you are. And that's really what Paul is saying in this passage. Elevate the way you live your life to align with who you are in Christ. God sees you in a different way. You're no longer who you used to be. And so he, he goes into this description of who they used to be before they found Christ. Now, this is the second time he's done it. He did it also in the second chapter. In the second chapter, he says, you know the way you used to live? You used to walk according to the ways of the world, being led by the power of the prince of the air, being enslaved to the desires of the flesh. That's the way you used to live. And once again here, he goes through this whole description, really a dark, depressing description of who they used to be, but there's a reason for this. And the the reason for this is you don't want to live like this anymore. If you've ever forgotten what you used to be like, I'm going to tell you what you used to be like. So Paul goes into the scripture and says, don't slip back into the old way. And he describes this old way as futile thinking. Futile thinking. Futile means without purpose. It means it's not going to get you where you want to go. It's like the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament where it says everything's meaningless. It's like... What you're doing is taking you somewhere, but it's not where you want to go. It's futile. If if you want to go to a a good destination, this isn't going to get you there. Don't live like this. And so he reminds them of that path, and he uses several different words to describe it. I want to look at those words because I think they, they follow a progression. It starts first with the darkening of the understanding. You're darkened in your understanding. What he means is that before you know the Lord there's things that you truly don't see and understand. He's not saying that as unbelievers you're dumb. He's just saying you're, you're blind to some reality. There's, there's a part of life that you just don't even see because your understanding's dark. And, and that's why when Scripture talks about truth, the truth is the light. When light comes into our lives, when the truth comes into our lives, what does it do to the darkness? It drives it out. But without truth... When you remove the light, you have darkness. And so he describes this pre-Christian way of life as living in the darkness. Now, sometimes you'll hear this perspective that, that people who have the greatest minds have decided not to be Christians. In fact, you'll hear some brilliant philosopher and some noted person who says, you know, I put my mind to this and I've concluded that it doesn't make sense. And I don't believe in God. And so they write their book and present their case for atheism because it says intelligent people don't believe this garbage. This is fairy tale stuff. You want to believe in unicorns and gods and angels and heaven and hell and all that stuff? Go ahead, but it's, but it's not real. And the problem is, 
it's exactly the opposite. There really is another side of reality that people outside of Christ don't see because they're darkened to it. Do you know that among the greatest philosophers, physicists, and mathematicians, that many of them were very God-fearing Christian men? Copernicus, Galilei, Descartes, Newton, Kepler, Mendel, Faraday. They didn't have to put aside their beliefs in God in order to look at science. In fact, they saw the world and all of the science meshing beautifully with their faith as actually revealing God through the things that they observed. Even Albert Einstein, who never professed to being a Christian, says science without religion is lame. That's, that's, Albert Einstein said that. Science without religion is lame. Those that are dark aren't, aren't clued in to the other reality there. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, if you don't have a spiritual heart, if you don't have those spiritual glasses in a sense, you're not going to see the spiritual side of things. It's going to be like they don't exist to you. About a decade ago, we had a family reunion here in Colorado Springs. Actually, it was about 15 years ago. About 30 relatives came to our house, and we were going to show them wonderful Colorado, the beautiful mountains, the, uh, the, the rivers we can raft in, the mountains we can hike in. And so the families all arrived on Sunday, and from Monday through Friday, it was overcast. I mean, the whole week. It rained. It was cloudy. And we kept telling people, really, you can see Pikes Peak from our deck. It's right over there behind those clouds. They go, yeah, right, yeah, really. Pikes Peak, uh-huh, I don't see it. And... And we all know it's there. It was just covered. And that's why Paul says there are people who have like a veil over their eyes and they can't see part of reality because they are spiritually blind. I know when I was a child for years, I would go to church and hear people read from the Bible. I would go to Sunday school class and honestly, I was like the, I was like the kid in Charlie Brown listening to his teacher. Wah, 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 wah. It just made no sense to me. It's boring. It has nothing to do with my life. And then I became a Christian in high school. And all of a sudden, the Bible like came alive. Wow, this is speaking to me. This is, this is relating to my life. What was the difference? I had a spiritual mind to discern spiritual things. So Paul says, apart from the Lord, you are dark. And that darkness leads to ignorance. Ignorance. You, you end up making conclusions and decisions based on your darkened understanding that are faulty. Now, Julie and I like this show on Nat Geo called One Strange Rock. Will Smith hosts this, he narrates this show, and it's all about the incredible features of our planet and the human body. I mean, really, when you look at Earth compared to any other um, celestial being, it is phenomenal. I mean, the Earth is incredible, beautiful, complex, all the different systems that work together. And then you've got human life. And, and as he describes all these things, he never acknowledges that there's a designer or creator behind any of it. In fact, what, what's irritating in a way is he's trying to find meaning and purpose, <clears throat> excuse me, meaning and purpose in this life without some overarching person that's put this all together. So his, his father passed away, and he says, I have this comfort of knowing that, that I'll, I'll be connected to my father forever. I said, how, who, where? Where where do you get this from? See, 
I, I look at the human body and it, and it draws me to think, this is no accident. I mean, do we really believe that, that, that several billion years ago in a warm swamp in Australia, some, some mindless matter got together and then over time morphed and created people and animals and all the living beings we have now and, and then uh, people who can design rocket ships and write books and sing music and really that came from all, all that was accidental, unguided, unintelligent, really? I look at, I look at the human s- systems. We have, we have at least 11 systems in our body. A system is something like the circulatory system. Circulatory system has the heart, pumps the blood, You've got all the veins running through the body to every part to bring food and and oxygen to those parts of the body. And then it brings back the waste and the carbon dioxide, filters it, sends it to the lungs so it can breathe it out. So you've got the heart, you've got the veins, and you've got the blood. Let me just ask you, if things are kind of morphing piece by piece, which came first, the blood, the veins, or the heart? Which came first? Oh, let's say the heart came first. Okay, what's what's the heart doing with no blood? Why would the heart even be needed if no blood? Okay, the blood came first then. Okay, so where'd the blood go when there's no heart, no veins? Where'd it go? See, it just makes no sense that all this stuff is an intricate system. You have to have all the parts together at the same time for it to work. It's like this is useless without this, and this is useless without this, and, and, but all of them together become miraculous. And that's just one system. You know, the heart's connected to the respiratory system because you have to have the oxygen and the carbon dioxide being filtered over here. And it's connected to the nervous system, which goes to the brain, so the heart knows when to pump and when to push. So, so all these systems could not, logically, have come about little by little, piece by piece. Somebody designed this incredible machine called the body, and it, it just raises the question. You may not believe in God, but you have to conclude there's intelligence behind this. Either it's alien, it's, it's, it's some other world, or it's what the Bible says. There's a God out there who made us. I mean, when, when you're dark, you make ignorant statements. In fact, one of the, one of the brilliant minds of the day um, says uh, that his conclusion, when, he, when he's pressed at how the world began, says, very possibly aliens from another planet planted seeds on this earth where life came from. <laughs> really? It takes a lot of faith to believe that. What book tells you that? Where, where'd, you, where'd you come up with that? So darkness leads to ignorance. Ignorance leads to hardness of heart. The sun that gives light is like the truth. It'll do one of two things. It'll... It'll soften some things. It'll harden other things. You got the, the heat of the sun. It'll soften the, the, the wax. It will harden the clay. God's truth will do one of two things. It'll, it'll, it'll soften your heart or it'll make it harder. You'll either bend to it or you'll resist it. It's one of those two things. So we see in the Old Testament, one of the famous stories of a hardened heart was Pharaoh. Pharaoh held God's people as slaves in Egypt. And so God chooses Moses to go to Egypt to say, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh says, no way. They're mine. He says, okay. God brings a plague. And the plague start out, the, the Nile turns like, like blood, and, and you got all these insect plagues, and all these plagues come. And each time Pharaoh says, I'm not budging. I'm not moving. You're not, you don't, you're not getting the people back. Finally, with the death of the firstborn, which by the way, 
was retribution to Pharaoh who killed the firstborn of Egypt. It says, you've become so hard-hearted, maybe this will strike you where it hurts. And the firstborn of, of, of Egypt died of, of animals and of their, of their sons. And then Pharaoh says, go, go. But see, all through that, his heart was hardened because he wasn't responding to God. In fact, shortly after letting the people go, what did he do? He went, went after to chase them to bring them back again. And so a hardness of heart develops and we become resistant. Jesus talked about this kind of hardness in the parable of the sower. In the parable of the sower, he says, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. And then a little bit later, Jesus explained that these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So when you think of a path, think of where people have walked constantly, you throw seed down, that seed's not going to get into the ground. It's just going to sit there. And the birds are going to come and eat it because it is not receptive to the seed. Jesus is saying some hearts are like that. Some hearts just won't accept it. They are hard and resistant. And when things are hard and, and become thicker, they become calloused. Callous. That's the next word he uses. That they had become calloused. Calluses develop when there's friction, stress, pressure, probably a little bit of pain, and we just put up with it, we tolerate it, we work past it, and we develop calluses. Now, I played guitar when I was younger. When I first started playing, the strings felt like razor blades trying to press down on these tiny, sharp strings. And over time, developed calluses on my fingertips, so it didn't bother me at all. Couldn't hardly feel it. When I was a kid, we had neighbors that would run around all summer barefoot. And these kids could, they, they could run on anything because um, their feet had gotten tough. They got calloused on the bottom. Me, I was always told to wear socks and shoes. So whenever I went to the beach, we'd, we'd park our car and, and we'd walk through uh, an area where there's acorns. So there's acorns, there's little twigs. And here I am barefooted going, because my feet are all tender. And, and my friends, are just, they're just cruising along because they've got the calluses there. They're not feeling anything. They're insensitive to it. <clears throat> See, when you get calluses on your hands or your feet, it's a layer of dead skin. The skin has become dead. And I remember as a, as a child even taking needles and sticking them through my calluses because it didn't feel anything. Well, Paul's saying that's what happens to the heart. When a heart becomes repeatedly hardened, it becomes calloused. And you no longer have any sensitivity to God. So when God's trying to like prod you, saying, hey, that's, that's a wrong attitude. That's not a path you should be following. That's a, a bad decision. What's happening within you is I don't feel anything. You can engage in, in immoral activity and it doesn't even bother you. We'll watch a TV show like 2020 or Dateline and sometimes there's these horrible murder mysteries and sometimes I'm blown away with how evil people can be. But how, could that, how could that person do that to their, their old boyfriend or girlfriend or work associate? How, how could they do that to that person? Well, when your heart's hard, when you're calloused and you don't feel anything, you can do that. And so this is the progression we're going down from darkness to ignorance to hard-heartedness to callousness to wild lifestyle, to a wild lifestyle he says they, they gave themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He says basically they're driven by their emotions, not by their thoughts. Now I, I do what I feel like doing. 
I feel like this, so I'm going to do that. When you live that way, when you simply obey your feelings, you resort to almost an animal-like lifestyle. And, and you just kind of let restraint go. And you go after whatever you want because I want it, I get it. And that's, that could be food, that could be materialism, it could be sexual, it could be in all kinds of ways. You go to make yourself feel good. I'm going to do it because it feels good. And you become enslaved to your own desires. Paul says uh, something very similar in the book of Romans, but he goes even further in describing this. And I want to read this to you. It's found in Romans chapter 1. It says, Although they knew God, based on what they saw in creation, although people knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So very similar. He's telling the Romans, you're just, you, you were the same way as these Ephesians. Dark, futile thinking, wanting to do things your own way. So here's what happened. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He's saying that, God just said, okay, guardrails come off. You want it, go for it. Go for it with gusto. I'm not going to stop you anymore. I'm not going to caution you anymore. You've already resisted me enough. Go full force into what it is you want to do. It says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, Faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. He's saying that when God has kind of let you go, really all hell breaks out. And, and honestly, if you, could, if you read this passage in public today, people would throw stones at you. Because, it, because this is not a very popular passage to define certain practices as ungodly as things that God gave them up. But this is, this is part of Scripture. It's God looks at us and says, when, when you are blocking my voice and really have your heart set on what you want to do, I'm not going to fight you anymore. It's hard enough as a Christian to fight temptation. Think about how to fight temptation when you don't have God on your side. I mean, it's a losing battle. And so he says, this, this darkness... This darkness takes you down a path. This darkness progresses and it leads you down to a place ultimately that leads to death. He's not talking about the death penalty. These people deserve to die. He's just saying they deserve to be alienated from God. Really, that's what Paul gets to at the end of this passage in Ephesians. The ultimate destination is to be cut off. He says alienated from the life of God. See, all of us, are following one of two paths. Either we're hearing God's truth and saying, I'm surrendering myself to it. I'm being softened by it. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. I hear you, God. I'm going to align my life with you. Thy will be done. That's one way to live. The other way to live is say, God, I don't like what you say because my will be done. My will be done. And each one here is on one of those two paths. Either we are consistently surrendering ourselves to God and saying, your will be done, your will be done, or we're coming to a place where we say, "Mm mm-mm, 
my will be done. That's the choice. But this choice takes us away from God, away from the life God has for us. So Paul, Paul goes through this whole explanation and says, you know, this is the way you used to live. Why, why would you want to go back to doing those kinds of things? Be very careful because it's very easy to fall back. And, and you look at someone who's lost a, a lot of weight. I, I've known some people lost a lot of weight and then regained a bunch. Because it's so easy to slide back into old behaviors, old habits. And then when you do, the old clothes start to fit again. And he's saying, don't, don't go there. When you start to find yourself heading this path, say, stop, stop. And, and he says, cast off this and put on this new way. And we'll talk next week more in detail what this new way looks like. But what I want to talk about in the rest of the message is the bridge between the two. Because he says, in order to go from here to here, it requires something supernatural. Your mind has to be renewed. You need to experience the renewing of the mind. So that's the key to putting on the new wardrobe, to be renewed and to live in this new way. To be renewed means to be made new again and again and again. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says that outwardly we waste away, inwardly we're being made new day by day. I know people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who are younger in spirit than teenagers because of their liveliness of their faith, their love for God. You can be old on the outside but very young on the inside because of Christ renewing you. But it's a renewing of the mind because conduct follows thinking. How we think, that's where the battlefield is. How we think determines how we'll act. And you just go back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Satan came along, whispered to them. And what did he do? He messed with their mind. Oh, God didn't really say that, did he? You, you think he's going to do that if you eat the tree? No. You know, and they start thinking, well, maybe not. Maybe God's trying to keep something from us. And so their thinking leads to their behavior. And so we need to change our way of thinking, our, our patterns of thinking. So there's three things this passage alludes to that I think will guide us to have a renewed mind. First, to look to Christ as our example and our teacher. He says, after describing this old way of life, but that is not how you learn Christ. That's not how you learn Christ. That's, that's not what you learned about Jesus. You learn something very different. I love the fact that he focuses on Jesus. He didn't say, that's what you learned about the church, or that's what you learned about religion. That, that's what you heard about you know, Catholicism, or Baptist, or Lutheran, or Methodist. He says, that, that's, not, that's not what he focuses on. He says, but that's not what you learned about Jesus. Because the real focus is Jesus. You want to think right, seek to think like Jesus. Jesus is the greatest example of truth in action. And Jesus himself said, I'm not just going to tell you truth, I'm going to embody truth. A lot of great spiritual people said, I'll, I'll, I'll point you to the truth. The truth is in my book. The truth is in this sacred text. Jesus said, the truth is in scripture, but the truth is also in me, because I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am truth. If you follow me, you have truth. If you're connected to Jesus, the light continually shines in your life to light your path. The darkness dissipates because you're receiving truth from him. When you block Jesus out, things get very dark. So he says, keep the focus on the source, which is Jesus, the example and teacher. And then let his word correct your thinking. Let the scriptures begin to reorient our mindset. We grow up with kind of a kind of recordings in our mind, things that we've heard, things we've, we've picked up, and this is the way we live, and this is who I am, and this is how I'm to live. 
And sometimes it's very good. Sometimes it's right on target. But, but other times it's off. And especially when you follow the voice of culture. I'd have to say that our culture continues to slip away from its, its kind of Christian and biblical um, foundation that many of us when we were little kids was just kind of taken for granted. It's eroded away. In fact, it's scoffed at that that's no longer fashionable. So Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, let, let, let your mind be renewed because culture is trying to press you into a mold. It's trying to conform you into a way of thinking. And honestly, it's gotten so, so strong in our culture that we have cultural police that, that will enforce the values of the culture to where certain, certain speakers can't speak at universities, even though years ago they were perfectly welcome. Now they're not anymore because they don't agree with the cultural view. People are, people are booted off of newspaper um, staffs. They're, they're booted out of colleges because they don't hold to the cultural values because they're, they're growing increasingly at odds with what have been considered tr- traditional Christian values, and particularly in the areas of marriage and gender. And it's beginning harder and harder for, for Christians to, to accept the direction of the culture without saying, hey, I don't like the way that's going. For example, I was just reading this week. It's, it just, when I look back over the last 10 years, this whole discussion on gender has, has gone so far to where I was filling out a form uh, on, online the other day, and when it said gender, it said male, female, and other. I said, other? How can, what do you mean the other? What, what other is there? Well, there is an other. There's, you could be non-binary. Non-binary means you are not identified to a gender. And it's believed now that gender is not biological, it is neurological. That, that it fluctuates through your life. You could be feminine for a part, you could be masculine for a part, you could be neither for part of your life. And, and it's even coming so far to, to tell people, don't call your children, boys and girls, just refer to them as they and it because they've not determined yet where they're landing with their gender. And I think, this is so mind-boggling crazy. I mean, I have a grandson. I'm going to call him my grandson. I'm not going to call him grandit, grand, non, grand non-binary. But, and I'm, I'm not trying to make light of that other than this thinking has gotten us so far to where some of us have to step back and go, I don't, I don't like where that's going. And I've got to decide, how do, how do I teach my children? And how do I guard from taking my whole family down this path and confusing my children? And there's all kinds of stuff happening in our culture. So he says, be renewed in the way you think. In James chapter 1, it tells us that the, the scriptures are like a mirror. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently in his, at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So he says the, the, the scriptures are like a mirror. Now when you look in the mirror, the main reason we look in the mirror is to make sure nothing's wrong in the way we look. Okay, I want to look in the mirror to make sure there's nothing in my teeth, you know, my hair looks good and the collar's straight, you know, that it look good. You, you want to look for what's wrong so you can correct it. He says, that's what the scriptures do. They show us your old way of life and how it's not working and how you should live a new way. 
And he says, if you see the new way to live and do it, you'll be blessed in doing it. See, what Paul's getting at is we've got to change the old to the new. We've got to think like we're new people. When, When my wife and I went to Tanzania with the mission team several years ago, we went out to the Maasai Reservation, or not, I shouldn't say reservation, it was, a, it was a Maasai region out in the bush. And the Maasai people are very dignified. They have colorful clothing. Some will put this um, reddish kind of mud in their hair and fashion it and shape it. Um, a lot of them have beadwork that they wear. And we found out some of the Christian families began to break away from their culture in fact, it was very common in the Maasai culture that if you're a married man, you loan your wife to other men. If you have, if you have a, a friend traveling through and he needs to sleep with your wife, then you allow her because she's your property. And here's what happened to some of these Christian men. They said, we don't like that anymore. Our wives are our partners. They're our treasure. We should be protecting our wives. And they said, no longer will we share our wives with anybody. And some of them began to actually dress different. They didn't dress like Maasai. Some even changed their names to biblical or sometimes Western names like Robert or David. And and what they were trying to do is make a statement of, we're no longer who we used to be. It wasn't so much repudiating the culture as the values of the culture. We don't hold to that way of life anymore. We don't hold to some of those values anymore. We've been made new. And that's what Paul's getting at to be different. And so this last part here is let his, not only let his word correct your thinking, but keep on listening and obeying. Keep hearing God's voice and doing what he says. And the reason this is so important is because of a story found in the book of Hebrews. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. People say, Can a Christian fall away? It says right here. So it's right here they can fall away. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end as it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? This is very significant. What, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, These people that that God led out of Egypt by the hand of Moses, the ones who saw the plagues, the the ones who saw the parting of the Red Sea, the ones who saw the giving of the Ten Commandments, I mean, you can think, if you saw miracles like that, man, you'd be a Christian for life. He says, not so quick. It was those people that rebelled against God because they hardened their heart to his voice. It's a warning to all of us as believers. It can happen to us. That's why he says, make sure that we're not deceived and hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And look out for one another to help one another stay on track. That's why every Sunday we keep repeating, hear God's voice. Don't harden your heart to it. Respond to it. Say yes to it. Because really there's only, there's only two responses to hearing God's word. I'm either going to resist it or I'm going to surrender to it. Resist or surrender. And where is it you're at today? Resisting or surrendering? Even if you're an unbeliever who's just started coming to church, God's speaking to you too. God has a whole wonderful life. He has a whole new wardrobe to put on you. And you simply get on that path by saying, I hear your voice. I say yes to Jesus.